Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Tim Moore. Tim is an associate professor of economics at Purdue University. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jen. I'm really uh, pleased to be here. Pleased to have you. So today we're going to talk about your research on the long-term effects of the crack cocaine epidemic in the U.S. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Sure. I'm an economist who works on public economics and health economics. I tend to describe my research interests um, as generally falling into three categories. The first is the economics of illicit drug markets and, and this paper is, uh, is firmly in that uh, space. The second is um, economic determinants of health. And often I'm looking at kind of mortality and how it's connected to income payments and other things uh, in, in that area. And I also, um, I'm also interested in social insurance. And there I'm primarily interested in understanding disability insurance. And so across all my interests, it nearly always involves death or disability. <laughs> Cheery topics. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So before graduate school, I worked at a drug and alcohol treatment center for a couple of years before I, I did my PhD. And so in that role, I was doing work on um, you know, policy research around illicit drug markets in Australia. I got to the University of Maryland um, and Bill Evans was the person I was working for as a research assistant. Craig Garthwaite uh, was his other research assistant. And we all got talking and, and Bill threw out an idea around how the crack cocaine epidemic might be affecting education choices. That led to a paper that we, uh, that we published in 2016. And then we, through that process, we wanted, to, uh, we wanted to explore in more detail the long-term impacts of the crack cocaine epidemic on violence and particularly on young black minors. It's always interesting to hear how these co-author groups develop. That's very interesting. So your paper we're going to talk about today is titled Guns and Violence, the Enduring Impact of Crack Cocaine Markets on Young Black Males. As you said, it's co-authored with Bill Evans and Craig Garthwaite, and it's published in the Journal of Public Economics. So let's start with some background on violent crime in the U.S. from, say, the 1980s through the present. Very big picture here. What happened to violent crime during these decades? And to what extent have trends been different across different groups? Yeah, it's um, so I'll primarily focus on what's been happening you know, for murder rates. And, and that's what we focus on uh, in the paper. Um, the 1970s, you know, the murder rates were, were quite high um, nationally. And then in the early 80s, they started to decline for the first half of the 1980s. Then they went up slightly um, for the second half of the, the 1980s and peaked around 1991. And then since 1991, um, until about 2015, there's been a really steady decline in, in the overall murder rate. So it's roughly halved over that period. And so that's kind of a, the basic national story. But then if you dig into uh, specific demographic groups, actually most demographic groups have experienced declines since at least 1980. So the main exception are younger black males. And so they had um, a doubling of their murder rate between uh, the mid 80s and, uh, and the early 1990s. Other groups, young white males, younger um, black females also experienced 
some increase in the late 1980s, but often much lower base and and also the overall change was just much smaller. So the basic story is that what looks to be a slight movement down and then a slight movement up in murder rates in the 1980s, the movement up is almost entirely driven by worsening outcomes among young black males. So there's substantial heterogeneity. There's actually a great paper in 1995 by Al Bloomstein that really documents this fact and starts to uh, try and understand what's what's been going on. But that's, you know, the big picture of what's been happening with murder rates over the last 40 years. Since 2015, we've had a bit of an increase, but that's after a, a lot of, you know, a long period of decline. So in the big scheme of things, nationally, things are, you know, things look a lot better now than they, um, than they did certainly in the, the late 1980s, early 1990s. Yeah, and this big trend over time, this you know rapid increase and then decrease in violent crime and homicide in particular has been this big mystery in the crime literature. Uh, I'd say everyone has their favorite theory for what's going on. There are many theories for what caused those patterns during the 80s and 90s, but you argue in the paper that most of these theories aren't particularly satisfying. So talk a little bit about some of these theories that have been floated over the years and tell us what you see as their primary drawback. I mean, there's a lot of different theories in uh, in this space. Um, I mean, some of the more prominent ones and maybe better known ones are that, um, you know, changes in access to abortion um, changed, you know, the composition of uh, younger people. Related to that, just a general decline in teen births has maybe changed violent crime. Other types of changing demographics, just, uh, you know, as the baby boom has moved through the uh, age groups. Other explanations include um, changes in uh, law enforcement, so changes in more policing, changes in policing, more incarceration. I mean, then there's also things like um, changes in the amount of lead in gasoline. I think you've had uh, Steve Billings on to, to talk about that previously. So there's a lot of theories. And what I would say is there's kind of, there's two features. So there's a need to explain this kind of long-term decline But there's also a need to explain why the experiences, particularly of young black males, have been so different over this period. And and what we emphasise in the paper is that their murder rates, their experience of violent crime was much more similar to other demographic groups prior to this period. So if we look in the the late 60s and and the 1970s, they track other groups much more than they do once we hit this period of the late 1980s, early 1990s. So you and your co-authors are going to focus on a different theory for these patterns in violent crime, the emergence of crack cocaine in cities across the U.S. So for those who aren't familiar, what is crack cocaine and what made markets for this drug different from other drug markets that had existed before? It was a technological innovation up until the crack cocaine epidemic, which began in the early 1980s. People generally took powder cocaine, and there was a way to sort of take a more pure form of cocaine called freebase cocaine, but it was very dangerous to make. So you would have to use flammable materials, and there was a good chance that you would uh, do yourself some serious injury if you had tried to make freebase cocaine. Crack cocaine was just a much simpler way to create a form of cocaine that resulted in a very intense and brief high. And what it allowed dealers to do was sell much smaller amounts of cocaine much more cheaply. So there's stories of people taking uh, you know, an, an amount of 
powder cocaine um, that might have been worth, you know, let's say, kind of $10,000, $20,000 and turning it into you know, a street value of you know, $100,000 or more than $100,000 by converting it to crack cocaine. So it increased the profits, it increased the number of potential consumers so they could sell crack cocaine for as little as kind of 2 or $3. And so we had a situation with crack cocaine where suddenly there's a way to, to get a lot of profit, there's a way to sell to a lot of, uh, to a lot of new consumers, um, and there's a lot of money to be made, and there's a lot of money to be made by people who have access to guns and a willingness to use violence. Um, and so... So it seemed that the, with crack cocaine and with the epidemic and the drug-taking epidemic, we just saw this huge change in violence over a relatively short period of time. And so how did crack cocaine emerge across the U.S.? Where did it appear first? And then what seems to have determined where it went next? We sort of use ethnographic uh, literature and, and various law enforcement reports to try and understand this, but it, it seems uh, fairly clear that we see that there was an influx of powder cocaine and then the introduction of of crack cocaine in primarily in three large cities, uh, Miami, uh, New York City, and Los Angeles. Um, And that just came about because there were various trafficking groups that were sort of operating in those cities. They all have port access. And so there's kind of documented violence happening in those places, uh, you know, slightly earlier than, than what's going on in the rest of the United States. As best as we can tell, it just slowly spread across the U.S. based on proximity to uh, to those three uh, major cities, um, and also the, the the potential size of the market. We have a way to date when we think crack cocaine arrived in different cities, and I'll, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that in a little while. But when we use that measure, and then we try and uh, work out what's correlated with that measure. We find that the two major, um, uh, the two strongest correlations are proximity to one of these three cities, Miami, New York City, and Los Angeles, and also population size. And lots of other things don't seem to help explain it. So poverty rates, pre-existing violence, these sort of things don't seem to uh, account for it. And again, if you look at law enforcement reports and, and um, and other literature, people will talk about you know, we're, we've, uh, we've made a lot of money in, uh, in a particular city and we've exhausted that city. And then uh, people get sent along the interstate to the next major city to sort of create crack houses and, and sort of establish a new, a new market for crack cocaine. Hmm. So you mentioned earlier that these markets were associated with higher violence than had existed in the past. Say a little bit more about why that was. What what was it about crack cocaine in these markets that we should be thinking about as affecting violent crime, both in the short term and potentially over the longer term? Yeah, I think there's a couple of features. One is that gangs were um, were centrally involved in in the distribution of, of crack cocaine, so that they were making lots of money from crack cocaine. They were organised and and they were sort of very effective at uh, distributing uh, crack cocaine and, and getting into to markets. And they also, they had access to guns. You know, some of them had, um, you know, direct experience of violence either in the United States or in other places. And a lot of crack cocaine markets, they were either in these, what was known as crack houses or in open air street markets. When crack cocaine is being sold for two, three, five dollars, 
people would set up a, at a street corner um, and, and that would be, you know, a key way to, uh, to distribute crack cocaine. And so it became sort of a very literal battle for territory. So if you could, if you could take a popular street corner through violence and, and then sort of establish property rights over that, then that would be a, a way to, to sell a lot of crack cocaine and, and make a good profit. And then obviously, as you know, if one side increases their level of violence, then others do so in response. And then after a while, if there's just a general elevated level of violence, you know, people even not directly involved in the crack cocaine market, you know, start to increase their likelihood of carrying guns, their use of guns. And so that seems to be the way that you know, crack cocaine and the markets themselves and the profits associated with them led to this sort of elevated violence where sort of most clearly see it with just sort of enormous increases in murder rates in particular locations. Yeah. So to foreshadow a little bit, the argument you guys are going to be making here is that essentially this shifted us to a new equilibrium where it's, you know, more normal to carry a gun, seemed more necessary to carry a gun. And then once you're in that equilibrium, hard to shift out of it again yeah yeah so sometimes we talk about violence and it's and we we kind of it's hard to know i mean is this you know what are the risks is this important one thing we do in the uh in the 2016 paper to, to sort of document you know how meaningful this violence was we go through an exercise where we say if you're a 15 year old black male and you're looking at people slightly older than you in your county as a way of kind of estimating your risk of dying. And so the idea would be you're a 15 year old, you look at what's the risk of dying at age 16 among uh, young black males at age 17, age 18, and, and so on. And you take all that, that all the way through to 30. Then in some cities, in some counties, we see that if you base your risk of dying on that, then you would say in the early 1980s, some areas it was around kind of three or four percent, so one in thirty uh, chance of dying uh, by the age of thirty, which is enormous. So for almost every other demographic group, so if you do this similar calculation for white males, um, black females, and white females, then you get an estimate well under one percent. So it's already quite high for black males in the early nineteen eighties. As crack cocaine comes in. Throughout the 80s, and then sort of these problems peak in the early 1990s. In some cities, this gets up to you know 14, 15%. And so, so if you're just looking around and saying, what is going on in, in my community and what does that mean about my chance of dying, then you get to these sort of incredibly high, you know, one in six, one in seven chances of dying. And, and things are, you know, ultimately drop away. And so sort of few people, I think, literally face that that risk between 15 and 30. But it really highlights how meaningful this was. So, you you know, it's a higher risk than um, if you're a soldier in uh, World War One or World War Two. It's kind of on a similar order to when we think about, um, you know, the mortality risks of AIDS in Africa at the peak of the AIDS epidemic. And so that's just to really highlight that that we're talking about something that's sort of really serious and really um, kind of really visible and really meaningful to a lot of people in in uh, a lot of young black males. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about what we'd known about the effects of the crack cocaine epidemic before this paper. You all had previous work, uh, so tell us more about that paper, but also other work in this area. I mean, 
it's been well documented. I, I think that there's been a lot of violence and a lot of problems. And I mean, there's an enormous amount of, uh, you know, really great work by economists and criminologists and, and ethnographers and, and, and other social scientists. In terms of the sort of some of the key economics uh, literature, Jeff Groger and Michael Willis have a nice paper in uh, published in 2000 documenting um, how uh, urban crime rates rates were elevated by the crack cocaine epidemic. Roland Fryer, Paul Heaton, Steve Levitt and Kevin Murphy, they do something where they develop a crack index. They sort of look at a host of, um, you know, potential proxy indicators and they document sort of huge increases in black homicide and also, you know, adverse birth outcomes and a a range of other problems. As you um, mentioned, we, we have this work where we look at the black-white uh, gap in um, uh, educational attainment. Um, and we essentially uh, you know, argue in, in that paper that the crack cocaine epidemic, the changing fortunes of particularly of young black males in terms of mortality risks, increased incarceration, and just kind of you know, general changes in the, in the sort of the, the, the length, the potential length of their life and the quality of their life, you know, is actually probably a really uh, important reason for why high school graduation rates for black males actually declined in the 19, uh, early, late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, and that's after a period of, of a lot of progress. Um, and so there was, there was a lot of convergence between, you know, black and white high school graduation rates. Up until then, the progress stalled. And we argue in that paper that, that we should be thinking about one of the consequences of the crack cocaine epidemic as, as being a key reason for that stalled progress. So measuring the effect of you know this big historical episode, <laughs> this, this crack cocaine epidemic, might sound like it's straightforward, but it isn't. <laughs> so, so what are the main hurdles that researchers need to overcome in order to measure the effects of these events on homicide, as you do in this paper, and, and particularly gun violence or gun homicide? Yeah, well, I, I mean, this is an area where there's kind of enormous data limitations and also lots of concerns about various, uh, you know, correlations, underlying correlations going on that are very difficult to rule out. And, and so one of, the, one of the challenges is to work, is to sort of come up with a method for deciding when crack cocaine uh, likely arrived in different locations. And there's been a number of approaches to that. Jeff Kroger and Michael Willis, the paper I referenced before, for example, they um, surveyed um, police chiefs in a number of major cities, asking them when they thought crack cocaine arrived. They also did something trying to look, in, look at emergency department activity around, uh, around drugs. Roland Fryer and, and co-authors um, you know, developed this crack index. What we do in, in our paper is we look at cocaine-related causes of death. So one, one challenge is that until we're well into the crack cocaine epidemic, in a lot of survey data, there's actually no distinction made between uh, different types of cocaine. So you don't necessarily know whether something is powder cocaine or, or crack cocaine. But in 1980, there were only about eight to 10 cocaine-related causes of death across the entire United States. And it rose from there over the next couple of decades. And so what we do is we say, when we see a couple of years in a row of cocaine-related deaths, then we're going to assume that that is sort of identifying that crack cocaine has arrived. Um, given that you know powder cocaine isn't changing a lot over this period, it accounted for a really small rate of death. 
And so the idea here is that it's kind of, we need a nationally representative measure. And the idea is we're taking kind of physicians' judgments on a death certificate as kind of an indicator of, of it arriving. You know, the caveat is that we're talking, you know, cocaine doesn't have a very um, direct effect on mortality risks. And so, so we're only ever talking about a relatively small number. But we think in terms of, you know, having well-measured mortality data that's available at the national level, then we make progress on that. And, and we, we do a bunch of things to show that it compares quite well with some of these other measures. And then, as you, you say, we would ideally want information, detailed information on, on guns and how they're used. There's limited information on, on legal guns. And, and then one of the extra challenges is that we think a, lo a lot of what's going on here is, uh, is around illicit gun use. Yeah. And then there are also just sort of the big picture identification challenges of, you know, you don't want to just compare places where there are, you know, there are lots of crack cocaine deaths or cocaine related violence to places where that isn't existing because they those places might be different in some way. And so you're going to use the gradual emergence of crack cocaine across different cities that we talked about before as a natural experiment to measure the causal effects of these drug markets across demographic groups. So tell us a bit about your research strategy here and how you do this. Yeah. So what we're sort of relying on is that crack cocaine spread from these uh, these three initial cities, and it spread primarily based on you know geographic proximity and potentially uh, population. But it wasn't sort of closely tied to. It wasn't as though you know people who were deciding where to establish a crack cocaine market were saying, I want to go to a place where I believe there's a high propensity for violence or where there's kind of high existing levels of violence. And so we, what we rely on is that we get this gradual spread of crack cocaine across the US. And, and the way to think about it is it's, it sort of meets, it starts in the, uh, the West Coast in Los Angeles, it's starting on the East Coast in Miami and, and New York. And then over time, these expansions are, are kind of meeting somewhere in the middle. And so we're, we're going to use the timing. And so the ones, the locations that get crack cocaine late are kind of serving as, a, um, as the kind of the comparison group as they're giving the counterfactual trends for places that already have crack cocaine. And then another thing that we do in this paper is we say we think that older black males, and by older here I'm, I'm talking about um, black males age 35 and over, that we think that they're a good comparison group for younger black males. And the older black males we don't think are directly treated by the, the violence around the crack cocaine market or strongly treated. And so they're going to provide, their murder rates are going to provide information about what the crack cocaine, you know, what the murder rates of younger black males would have looked like absent the, uh, the crack cocaine epidemic. And so it's kind of those two features that we're relying on in our primary strategy to sort of, you know, think about this as a way to sort of work out what's sort of causally related to, to crack cocaine versus what else is going on over this period. And what data are you using for all of this? Our primary data are um, what's known as the multiple cause of death um, data. So this is a compilation of death certificates that's managed by, um, by the CDC. You know, with the help of vital statistics bureaus at the states, they compile and clean you know, death certificates across the U.S. 
code them in a, in a consistent way. We have information on a decedent's age, uh, sex, race, the cause of death, so we can identify uh, murders and other causes of death, and a bit of other information. And so that's our primary data. We also use some other data. Um, probably the other main data we use is uh, the FBI's supplemental homicide reports. So this is a compilation by the FBI on um, that has a bit more information about homicides. And, and, the, and the main bit of extra information that's really helpful for us is for a large fraction of, of homicides, it has the characteristics of the offender. And so the multiple cause of death data, our, our primary data, it gives us uh, great information on victims, but we don't know anything in that about who committed the murder. The, the supplemental homicide reports by the FBI, that gives us more information around that. If they got caught, I guess. If they got say, caught, yeah. yeah. So obviously there's always a set of uh, people who are missing and we should always be concerned about whether there's kind of measurement issues that vary, you know, with, with something like this. Um, we see kind of broadly similar fractions of, of reports o- over this period. And so we essentially think that, you know, there's some missing information, but as long as that kind of missing information stays sort of fairly uh, proportional to what's, what other changes are going on, then we should still be able to uh, use that in an informative way. Yeah. There are always caveats with crime data. <laughs> you know, and especially in this area, you have a lot of incredible guests on who I think this paper, in terms of the quality of the data and the precision of the estimates and sort of how convincing the empirical strategy is, I, I, I would be comfortable saying that you would have many more guests on with, with who are much better on, on all of those fronts. But what I would say is that we're talking about a really important social problem and, and social issue. And so our approach with this paper and, and the other paper and even some of my other work is there's lots of limitations. Are the limitations so substantial that a question I, I ask myself is, are the limitations so substantial that we can't learn anything or we can't make progress? And what I think, and, and I think what my co-authors would agree with is, given the importance, we actually can make some progress uh, in this area. So that's that's just to sort of say, we know from the outset, there's some huge measurement issues here, but we think that this is important enough that we should be spending some time and attention on it. I appreciate all those careful caveats, but do you think you're being a bit too modest? <laughs> I think you guys do make a compelling case here. Uh, Thank, you. So, Thank you. So yeah, let's let's keep digging into it. Sure. Okay. So those are the data. So what are the outcome measures you're most interested in here? The main thing we focus on um, are uh, murder rates. We pretty quickly kind of drill down into sort of murder rates for specific demographic groups. So we condition on sex, race, and age when we do that. We also um, you know, for some subsequent exercises, we look at some other causes of death. And we also, as I said, look at, you know, offenders and sometimes how the offenders knew the victims. But really, our main outcome measure is what's going on uh, in terms of murder rates, both before the arrival of crack cocaine markets and then subsequently. And what we're going to do is we're going to try and follow murder rates for up to 17 years after crack cocaine markets emerged. Yeah. So there are lots of graphs in this paper, which I, I wish we could show the listeners, but we'll have to just tell them to go look for themselves. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the results. What do you find is the effect of crack cocaine on homicide rates across these various groups? So the main thing we, um, we're 
focusing on when we report our main results is we're, we're looking primarily at, at what's going on among 15 to 24 year olds because they're the ones with the big changes um, relative to older comparison groups. So firstly, if we look at black males, there's a huge increase and you know, more than doubling of uh, or approximate doubling of, of their murder rates in the, in the first few years after crack cocaine markets emerge. And then that sort of declines slightly, but only slightly. So 17 years after, we estimate that uh, their murder rates relative to these older black males, these black males aged 35 and over, are still 70% higher than they would have been without uh, crack cocaine. Then if we look at white males, black females and white females, we actually see um, elevated uh, murder rates after crack cocaine for white males and for, for black females. We don't see anything, any sort of meaningful changes for white females. But for white males, we, we see this kind of, we see some persistence, but their, their underlying murder rates are much lower. So the overall change is about an order of magnitude lower. So it's about one-tenth the size of what's going on for younger black males. And then for black females, we see this elevation in the years after crack cocaine arrived. But then by about 10 years after, we see sort of the murder rates sort of approximately return to baseline. So that's the kind of the, the, the main result. In terms of another way to sort of frame out sort of the effect on younger black males is that we estimate that even sort of now, many years after the crack cocaine uh, epidemic has subsided, this kind of persistence in homicide rates among young black males, it can account for about one-tenth of the life expectancy gap between white males and black males. And so it's kind of, it's not explaining everything, but it's explaining kind of a meaningful amount of that gap. Yeah. So all of the results you just described are, you know, relative to this older black male comparison group, which you mentioned in general, you know, there, I think you said that there isn't much going on for them, but it is just striking. I just want to highlight how striking it is to look at the graphs and realize, yeah, there's just no effect on that group. And so they really are, I think if people just heard that that's your comparison group, they might be worried about it yeah, because they might think, well, you know, they might be affected here too. But I think when you look at the graphs, it's like, oh, no, they're not affected. They are actually a really good comparison group here. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Just to be, sort of be precise. I mean, what we're doing in each of these exercises is we're comparing. So for white males, we're comparing them to older white males. But you're right. So, the, I mean, the main takeaway is we also do exercises where we essentially just look at, is there a kind of a visible change in the outcomes of of older black males after crack cocaine arrived, and we, we don't see any. So that kind of gives us some comfort that that's a group that is not getting kind of at least observably uh, affected by the crack cocaine epidemic. But one thing to keep in mind is, you know, to the extent that, it, you know, if that was true, it would actually kind of bias our um, results downwards. So, so the true results would actually be higher than what we're estimating. Just to be clear, I, I don't think that's the case. I'm not, I'm not making an argument that our the true results are actually higher. But in that sense, so even if you have some concerns uh, around that, and, and hopefully if you, for those who read the paper, they, um, that they find it fairly convincing. But even if you did, then you, you would still say, look, these are really large estimates. These are really meaningful estimates just because of what, you know, the implications that has for the analysis. 
Okay. So that's the main result that basically young black males are, are shifted to this new equilibrium with a higher murder rate after crack cocaine enters their city. You then do a bunch of other stuff to try to dig into potential mechanisms a bit, particularly to build the case that this is the result of an increase in gun possession among this age group. So tell us a bit about what you do here and then tell us what you find. Sure. So something that that's interesting and and you know we document a bit in the uh, in the paper but I, I I we reference other work and and I think for people interested it would you know it'd be great to sort of go go and read some of the other work but there is this kind of question about like how is someone who is uh, age 15 to 24 in 1990 by 2010 they're um they're 20 years older and how is it that sort of dr- uh, guns get sort of transferred uh, to, to younger people? And, and there's a bunch of ethnic, ethnographic and uh, criminology studies that sort of uh, document that the guns are very long lasting, that they are kind of transferred down through families, um, particularly as people and friends, particularly as people get into sort of high risk periods. So, so I think that's that's one thing to sort of start out with. Like, what do we think is the mechanism here? We, we think it's that sort of more guns go into a community and those are sort of it, there's a high likelihood that they're going to be used by younger younger males in, in that community and so that's kind of that's something important to keep in mind and then what do we do empirically do to sort of mount the argument that that gun possession is is sort of playing a role here one is that we look at we look at offending information on who's committing these murders and even though young white males and young black females experience this elevated murder rates um, after the arrival of crack cocaine, when you focus in on offenders, the rise in offences is, is nearly entirely coming from younger black males. Um, and so just a, an interesting statistic there is that their share of all offending, of all, um, so where, where we can identify who committed a murder then they get identified, the fraction of the time that they're identified goes from 20% to 33% in the six years after crack cocaine arrived. So they go from uh, accounting for one-fifth of all murders to uh, one-third of all murders. And something to keep in mind is at a population level, they account for about 1% of the entire US population. So that's kind of, that's one thing that it seems as though you know, there's just this enormous uh, increase in gun-related homicides. The second thing is that we document there's an increase in murders and gun-related murders that aren't directly related to cocaine markers. So things like murders of family members and intimate partners for young black males, there's kind of this this huge increase in the murder rates for those types of uh, murders, as well as things that we might think about as um, being more likely to be involved uh, with with crack cocaine. And then the third thing is we look at the fraction of suicides that involve guns. And that's been used by a number of researchers as a measure of of gun possession. And so I think most prominently within sort of the economics literature, um, Phil Cook and uh, and Jens Ludwig have used that to try and as a proxy measure for, for gun possession. And we find that if we use that as a measure, then there was, uh, in places that had crack cocaine, places after crack cocaine had much higher um, share of all suicides being related to uh, uh, gun-related suicides. And there was no change in non-gun-related suicides. And so the idea there is that there's more guns in the community, there's more guns in homes, 
And so people are just more likely to use a gun uh, when they're attempting a suicide. And so that's what we um, that's what we see in our um, in, in our paper and in our analysis. We do a bit more there to sort of look at um, places, you know, the amount of gun suicides they had. And we, we just find that there's a consistent story there where the availability of guns and deaths related to guns are going up in general in places after the arrival of crack cocaine. And then that's very persistent over this, um, this long period of time. Yeah. So persistent long after, you know, crack cocaine itself was no longer that relevant and also in contexts where there's no reason to think it would be the relevant factor. Sure. And, and also actually a really, you know, it's not if the changes in suicide rates aren't as large as the changes we see for, for murder rates, but that's actually an important part of, of the story. So if you attribute the increasing gun-related suicides to crack cocaine markets as well, then that sort of amplifies this kind of gun violence story. Yeah, that's really interesting. One other thing that you do that I found really interesting was that you consider whether local gun policies mitigated or exacerbated these effects at all. Did they? So what we can do in in our analysis or what we what we do in our analysis and, and what we find is that adding information about uh, local gun policies doesn't seem to affect our results. And so it's not to say that local gun policies don't have some effect, but we don't find ev- any evidence that, that they affected the trajectory of gun-related violence that sort of flowed from crack cocaine markets. And so to do that, we reached out to, uh, to some uh, researchers, Michael Luca, Deepak Malotra, and, and Chris Poliquin, who have written a couple of uh, very nice papers on uh, using kind of detailed information on local gun policies. And they very generously shared, um, shared their data. We essentially added into our, um, our, into our um, regression specifications as kind of additional controls. And what we see is that it doesn't change our overall results. We're getting into, once we're talking about sort of local gun policies interacting with crack cocaine, we're, we're getting into um, kind of very hard to measure areas, but at least as best we can tell, is not a sort of a strong role for local gun policies. One more depressing finding after a lot of other depressing findings. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a valuable area, but it, it is very, it's very sad to, if you think, if you think about sort of the, the implications of this and the, you know, like the lived experience of, of, of people. And uh, yeah, so I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's depressing when you, when you get a result like that, but that, that's, given the measurement issues, that's sort of as best we can tell what, what we find. So what are the policy implications of all of this? What should policymakers and practitioners take away from your results? I would say I primarily work on drug epidemics and I have interests around drug epidemics. And so I primarily think about the policy implications as uh, in, in those terms. And so what, what I would say there is that we're, we're identifying a set of really kind of meaningful and large costs of the crack cocaine epidemic that, uh, you know, that may be present whenever we see this kind of uptick in violence. And, and so what does that mean? It means that, you know, once, a crack, once the crack cocaine epidemic subsided, that we shouldn't think that these communities are kind of back to normal. So the, the idea here um, when, we, when we're talking about gun violence is that if you have elevated amounts of violence, 
it changes people's um, expectations. It potentially uh, shifts us to a new equilibrium. And then we would have to we have to think about ways to sort of add in more resources, add in more controls, more policies that um, that maybe sort of take us back to a lower level of violence and just a better where people's expectations about their need to use guns and their the likelihood of harm coming from someone else with a gun is is just at a much lower level. I think there's probably a lot of kind of you know, potential implications to think about you know illegal guns and, and gun policy. But I'm just kind of less in the weeds in that area. And, and so I, I just feel I feel less comfortable sort of being having any explicit policy recommendations there, except where we're, you know, we're pointing to sort of a really kind of long lasting harms on particular groups that haven't been documented previously. Are there any other papers related to this topic that have come out since you all first started working on this study? So we can think about sort of work on crack cocaine epidemics, which are kind of drug epidemics generally. I mean, there's an enormous amount of work, I think, now coming out about, you know, the opioid crisis. And maybe we can talk about that briefly um, in a minute. There's some interesting work of trying to understand sort of other potential explanations. So uh, Lena Edland and Cecilia Machado have have something around uh, you know the role of uh, cell phones and and sort of that as a way to the growing availability of cell phones and um, and how that changed the what was going on in drug markets and and how that potentially sort of reduced violence uh, through the 1990s. Alan Bartley and Jeff Williams have have some work on um, the role of gun supply again to sort of understand you know what was going on with violence um, over this period. Uh, Mike Mikowski and Patrick Warren have some some interesting work from an earlier period thinking about firearms and violence uh, under John, uh, Jim Crow. And then uh, Takuma Kamada has some stuff around the crack cocaine epidemic and, and sort of understanding the implications for within city migration. And actually, I, I was just recently touring, uh, I went to Belfast and I met a, a postdoc there, Babak Jahan Shahi. One of the nice things about getting out and talking to people is that you find that people are actually finding a use for your things that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily uh, be aware of. He and co-authors um, took our uh, measure of when crack cocaine arrived and they used it to understand, you know, how, um, how illicit drug markets potentially affect public sector corruption, you know, focused in, in on uh, California. And so, I mean, there's a lot of interesting work, but that said, I, I, I think there's, it's interesting that we're talking 20, 30 years after the crack cocaine epidemic. And I would argue we, we understand sort of relatively little about sort of the, the overall implications and, and how to prevent future epidemics. And that's not true just for the crack cocaine epidemic. It's kind of, you know, we, we make some progress on this, but I actually think that, you know, there's a set of great work, but there's a lot more work that can be done. Yeah. Just one note on the opioid epidemic. I do think that the good news there is that, at least my understanding is, the opioid epidemic has not resulted in these increases in violence in the same way. Yeah. I mean, just for various reasons, the markets there are just very different. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. We certainly haven't seen the um, the sort of market-related violence that we uh, saw with the cocaine epidemic. Uh, I mean, the, the, the kind of the the largest and most obvious cost with the opioid epidemic is, is just sort of a huge number of, um, of overdoses. And, and so mm-hmm. one of the challenges of, of opioids is 
there's a much more direct link between uh, opioid use and mortality risk than what we generally find for, for cocaine use. So I agree that the kind of the violence component has been, um, you know, the, the lack of it has, has been good mm-hmm. with the caveat that everything else is pretty miserable. <laughs> There's plenty of bad news as well. <laughs> yeah, and, and one of the challenges yeah. I think is that these epidemics come along uh, in different countries, you know, every few years and they they start in particular ways and they end in particular ways. And it's really hard to sort of take out definitive les- lessons, but I still think that we could, you know, like we, it would be nice to know, well, the reason why the opioid epidemic is different to the crack cocaine epidemic is for these three reasons, because we understand the crack cocaine epidemic really well. And I, I don't think even paying attention across, you know, a, a number of fields and, and a much broader literature, I personally don't think that we're we're in that sort of position where we where we can be very uh, concrete about sort of what's going on from one epidemic to the next. So speaking of how much we don't know, what do you see as the the main research frontier here? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about in the years ahead? Yeah, I, I'm doing some work on opioid epidemics, and we probably have some more things we, we may explore around the crack cocaine epidemic. Most immediately, though, I'm working on, um, you know, looking at a... Um, a heroin e- epidemic in Australia uh, with Kevin Schnabel, um, who I believe has been on your show before. I- I'm also doing some work with Ben Hansen, who I, I think has also been on you uh, before, mm-hmm. and also uh, Will Olney around kind of fentanyl smuggling and, and understanding that. Um, mm-hmm. And so our biggest knowledge gaps are around these kind of really hard drugs. So things like fentanyl, heroin, powder cocaine, crack cocaine, methamphetamine, they're the ones that are associated with really serious harms and we don't know a lot about the consequences and we don't know a lot about the policies. I actually just wrote a handbook chapter last year with Rosalie Pakula, who is a fantastic researcher um, uh, in this area. And what became clear as we we were doing that is that there's, there's kind of lots of interesting features and there's actually an enormous amount of interesting research in this area, but there's actually there's just kind of so many fronts on which we could potentially um, learn things that are valuable. And and it's not to say that, you know, understanding prescription opioids or understanding marijuana markets are are not important. But I think as we get into these kind of these peaks of certain drug epidemics, you know, in the opioid epidemic at the moment, the vast majority is fentanyl and and then heroin is a real problem. I think naturally we have a lot of measurement issues there. And I wouldn't necessarily advise kind of, you know, young researchers to kind of hang their entire <laughs> agenda on such a tricky um, on such a tricky field. But I just think there's kind of enormous knowledge gaps. And, and I think I think as a community, it's these kind of as a community statements are always hard, but but it would be great if, you know, maybe 10 years from now, the economists had just sort of in, contributed a deeper appreciation to understanding both how epidemics come about, what to do when they happen. And just how much policy resources we, should we be putting in? My sense is that we just kind of underinvest in this stuff enormously, and that there's kind of all these long-term implications that aren't counted by policymakers and haven't been well documented. My guest today has been Tim Moore from Purdue University. Tim, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this paper. 
You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.